Good morning. Howard, stand here for just a minute. I don't know how many of y'all know it, but Howard used to be a Sooner fan all of his life. And I think he's decided to quit rooting for OU and start rooting for a winner like Texas Tech, which is red and black and 80 to 14. Thanks, buddy. Of course, we were playing, you know, Sam Houston High School, but that's okay. We beat him. Um, Y'all come on in, have a seat. If you need a, a, a class handout, we've got them back there. Just hold your hand up and we'll get it to you. Um, uh, um, we need some down here on, on each side, if y'all don't mind coming on down. <clears throat> this is uh, um, September 18th. Our Rebecca turned 18 this morning. So we're going to let class out early because Becky and I have to go get her gift. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, we uh, uh, have been working through the pastoral epistles, but we're going to take a brief time out again this morning about something because uh, I've started developing this um, uh, uh, phobia, this, uh, I don't know what it is, but, but I've, got, <clears throat> I've got something I want to say before we get into class. Uh, I have uh, um, had an opportunity to speak about Hurricane Katrina a few times in here and try to put it into what I consider to be a biblical perspective. And just about every time I do, I get some email or something that happens during the week that makes me want to respond again. And this seems to be the only place I get to respond, so I take it out on you. <laughs> I've thought about buying national TV time, but it's a bit expensive. <laughs> I've thought about writing letters to the editors, but I'm already doing that on Viox, and I don't think they'd print it to, for me twice. So here I am, and I take it out on you. Now, this one is a little bit more interesting. Historically, I've been bothered by things I've seen on TV or emails I've gotten from my friends that I've been responding to. This time, uh, um, I heard one of my favorite preachers in the world stand up and speak on this the other night. What night was it, Becky? It was uh, some of you in class were there. It was uh, like when Thursday night. Thursday night. <clears throat> and he's a wonderful preacher. And he's just, I think, really got one of the best grasps on what's going on of anybody I know. But boy, I think he missed the boat on this one. And since I couldn't, I was the, I was the MC for the, the evening, um, but I didn't think it appropriate to stand up when he was done as they were doing the financial plea and say, give to him in spite of what he just said. So I decided I'd wait till this morning when he can't respond, and I'd send him a copy of the tape. Um, so let's start with a word on Katrina. This gentleman that I love dearly, and I really do love him, and I really respect him, um, gave a sermon uh, Thursday night, and he explained that in his mind, Katrina is God's judgment. God's judgment upon sin, God's judgment upon uh, 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 the church, as well as the country, as well as the community. And he likened it to Sodom and Gomorrah, and he went through Scripture, and he found various Scriptures where God uh, 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 visited uh, uh, the human race uh, through floods and natural disasters. And, and he found some of those Scriptures and said, when there is a disaster, then 
you know, it's there for a reason. God brought it there to communicate a spiritual truth. The physical disaster communicates the spiritual truth. And <clears throat> it's the kind of thing where there's a little, I mean, I, I, I don't say I, I, he's 100%. I disagree with him 100%, okay? But I do disagree with him. And there's a point that I really want us to make sure we click in our heads because this plugs in for me on biblical literacy. This man's a good biblical scholar. And I don't stand up here and say, oh, gee, I figured it all out and other biblical scholars are all wrong. But I have no qualms taking issue with people whom I disagree with because I'm naturally argumentative. So <clears throat> this fella says that Hurricane Katrina was God's judgment. And my response is no, I don't believe so. I believe Hurricane Katrina is a result of our fallen world. Now, does that mean God cannot speak through Hurricane Katrina? Well, of course not. God speaks through everything. God speaks through the hurricane. God speaks through the, the worst atrocity in the history of our planet. The absolute worst thing that's ever happened was when people nailed the Son of God to a cross. Okay. But God worked through that. And God spoke through that. And God is in the process of redeeming us and the horrible events in our lives and speaking through them for good. So don't get me wrong. God will speak through everything. But that doesn't make the event itself an act of God. If heaven forbid you ever were molested as a child, which a couple of you in class have confided in me about. The fact that you were molested does not mean God was behind that. God abhors that. God detests that. That is a part of this fallen world, and that is an act of Satan and his emissaries. But, don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that God cannot work through that. It doesn't shut God out of that part of your life. God offers redemption, and God offers work, and God offers ministry. So God can speak through it, but that doesn't make it an act of God. Now, why do I plug this into this class particularly, other than the fact that I'm miffed about it. Uh-oh, I'm going backwards. It's because I, I, I really want people to watch the way they use Scripture. I don't think it's right to say, well, here's a natural disaster, so let's go to Sodom and Gomorrah, which is what my preaching friend did. Look at that natural disaster and see the three reasons God visited it upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Those must be the three reasons God visited it upon us. No, that's not the way we should do Scripture. We don't take our circumstances and go back and read them into Scripture. We go to Scripture and read it and understand it and then figure out how it might apply to our circumstances. So we don't take our conception of what Hurricane Katrina must have been and go back and find scriptural examples to support our theory. If you want to be fair, go back and read Scripture about weather in general. And you'll find, starting with the beginning of the fallen world that we're going to live in the midst of thorns and thistles and problems in our world because it's fallen. It's under a curse. It's under sin. And you can continue to read, and yeah, you can read God sent fire and brimstone to Sodom and Gomorrah, but you can also read that God sent the rainstorm, if you will, that God sent it. You can at least read that there was a massive storm when Jesus is asleep on the boat, and it wasn't because the apostles were sinful. 
it was to show that Christ had mastery over the air. So there are different reasons. You can read about Paul being tossed around and shipwrecked from another storm. But God saved those people. Now, was that because those people were sinful and God was visiting upon their sin? No. That was a natural disaster that they shouldn't have endured if they had just listened to Paul to start with when he said, let's stay in the harbor at Crete. The prince of the power of the air, we're told in Scripture, is Satan. And this world, while God allows things to happen and God is certainly all-powerful, we still need to remember that God has, in a sense, handed over this world to Satan. And we see things that happen and we shouldn't immediately say, oh, that's God that's causing this misery and this death and this suffering. Now, does God speak through it? Absolutely. Does God minister through it? Absolutely. But I think God weeps with it. Because I don't think that it's what he has planned for people. And I don't think it's what he has planned for the world in his ultimate sense. So I don't know if that matters to you, but now I can send this part of the tape to my friend. We'll go to the pastorals. The three epistles that are called pastoral epistles are called that because they deal with the church and how to take care of the church. Now, pastorals is not a label that Paul or anyone in the New Testament put on these three letters. It comes from the idea of a pastor, the pastor of a church, taking care of a church. And it's a label that was first put on that we can find evidence of in the early 1800s, I think 1807. But that's what these books have become known as since that time. And the reason why is these are books that deal with caring for the church. Okay? There are three of them. There's 1 Timothy, there's 2 Timothy, and there's Titus. Last week, actually the last two weeks, we dealt with 1 Timothy. The logic would tell you we're now going to deal with 2 Timothy. (laughs) Wrong. We're going to deal with Titus and loop it in. And the reason why is Paul wrote 1 and 2 Timothy at about the same time. He writes, I mean, 1 Timothy and Titus. Let me start again. Paul writes 1 Timothy and Titus about the same time. 2 Timothy is the last letter Paul wrote. We'll probably spend about two weeks in it. I urge you to be here. It's one of the most touching letters to me because it's a letter that Paul writes as Paul's facing death. And this incredible apostle that we've followed, you know, almost from his birth now for for months in this class, months and months and months, we see him face what he knows will be his last few days. And he's writing his his last thoughts in some ways. And it's very moving for me. I look forward to sharing it with you. We're not at that point yet when Paul's writing Titus. Paul is not in prison again. Paul is actually out and doing mission work at this time. And so we go to Rembrandt for this one last time on Titus. Um, Rembrandt paints the picture of Paul... Uh, writing to Thomas. Now, do you all remember? You, you, you remember um, when you were kids and they'd have those diagrams and say, what's wrong with this picture? Okay. Let's see how you all remember. What's wrong with this picture? Yeah. Yeah, he's got a pen in his hand. Not the kind of pen they used. But that's okay because Paul didn't write these anyway. He dictated them. It's a book, not a scroll. And that's wrong because they didn't have books then. They had scrolls. Although the church in Scripture, here's some trivia. Pull the lights up for a minute. It's a short lesson. We can throw in trivia as we go along. Um, Did you know 
that Christianity, by and large, is responsible for the development of books. Here's the reason why. Originally, people wrote in scrolls. They'd have some loose papers and parchments, but things were written in scrolls. Christians found a need for going back and checking Scripture. And so you needed to be able to go back and look for this or look for that and look what Luke said about the incarnation or look at what Paul wrote about uh, um, uh, charismatic gifts in the church. Okay? That's hard to do with a scroll. But they figured out that that new little technology that was being developed at the time where they just write it on sheets of paper and just clip them at the edge is a lot easier to flip around and find stuff. And so it was really the Christian church that started developing and using and, and pressing for that innovation of a book as opposed to scrolls. The Jews maintained the scrolls. And in fact, you go to synagogues today, you'll still find their scriptures in scrolls. The Roman culture, by and large, maintained scrolls and parchments for what they wrote. But it was, it was Christianity itself that really propelled the book into being so for what it's worth, but it hadn't happened by the time of Paul. Now let's go back. Rembrandt's a nice guy because Rembrandt does us another painting. Rembrandt painted Titus. Of course, this is about 1,400 years after Titus is dead, so we're not quite sure he looked like that. And bless his heart, he's still got that book problem over there, doesn't he? And even if Paul had written to Titus in a book, it wouldn't have been that thick because it's only three chapters. It would have been a pamphlet. Okay. But we've got Titus there, and Rembrandt paints Titus as a young man, probably appropriate as compared to Paul. Uh, Titus seems uh, to be younger than Paul. You get that impression by the way you read the letter. What do we know about Titus? Well, what we know about Titus comes from, uh, the, I think his name's mentioned like 13 times in the New Testament. And I've put in our, our lesson where those times are. But let me kind of give you a synopsis about what we know about Titus. We know that Titus was Greek, not Jewish. Had been converted by Paul. Paul calls him my true son in the faith. We know from reading Galatians 2 that when Paul converted Titus, Paul did not have Titus circumcised. Now this is interesting. Paul had Timothy circumcised probably converted about the same time. Paul had Timothy circumcised so that Timothy could minister among the Jews. Paul does not have Titus circumcised, even though Paul takes Titus with him to Jerusalem and to the church there, and in fact found that the church validated the circumcision or lack thereof. Um, in other words, Titus was one of those key figures that, that were involved in seeing that God does not communicate with the church only through Jewish history. But God's communication to the church and to each of us is individually, regardless of where we come from culturally. You did not, you know, Christianity was not something where you had to become Jewish to become a Christian. You became a Christian through the death of Jesus Christ regardless of your race, nationality, language, or anything else. And Titus was a key to that. Titus also was a friendly person. How do I know that? Well, Paul was having trouble with the Corinthian church. And you'll recall in 2 Corinthians, Paul says he had to send a pretty harsh letter to the Corinthian church. We don't know if it's 1 Corinthians or whatever. But Paul was very, very worried about how the Corinthian church was going to receive the letter and how the church would receive Paul. And so Paul had to send someone as kind of a mediator 
someone to kind of help the give and take to smooth the waters out. And yet at the same time, smoothing the waters out never compromised the message. That takes a talent and a gift. I don't know how many of you consider yourself peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called sons of God. But have you ever met people, there are some people that you throw them into a room and the last thing in the world they do is create peace. <laughs> there are some people, you throw them into a room and, and they create controversy. And it's not new with us. If you go back and read uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace, it starts out with a party scene. And the, the hostess of the party is pulling her hair now, not literally, but she's very concerned over making sure she's got all of the right people invited to the party. Because if there aren't people to talk to each sets of people, there's going to be big party problems. Okay? I don't know if you've ever done that, but, but I can tell you we've had occasions where we've sat down and more so in work than other formats, but we even had a case that, uh, that where I sat down with my team and I said, okay, looks like John's going to be here or Bill's going to be here and John and Bill are both full-time problems. So... We need a babysitter for John, and we need a babysitter for Bill. And what I mean by a babysitter is someone who makes peace, who can take that thorn in the flesh and, and turn them into something that, that, that you can live with. Does that make sense? That's the way Titus was. It's Titus Paul sent to Corinth to smooth out the, the waters. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 16 and 17, in essence, uh, uh, um, Titus is, is enthusiastic. He's a self-starter. He's out there getting it done. These are good traits, by the way. As I throw these up there, uh, don't, don't think, oh, gee, what a goofball. Instead think, hey, I'd like to be friendly. I'd like to be responsible. I, I, some of the best people I have in my office, and this may be horrible of me, but I categorize the people that work for me based upon their skill sets. I have a few people who are incredibly responsible. If I ask them to do something, they get it done. They just do. Or if they don't, they come back to me and say, Mark, I can't get it done. And that's the way I want, I, I want my kids to grow up and be. I want to train my children and I want to train myself. I want to be that way. To be responsible, where if someone says to me, I need you to do A, B, C, they don't have to come back a week later and say, did you do A, B, and C? Because if they told me to do it, they put it in my lap, it's going to be done. And if I can't do it, then I'm going to tell someone I can't do it. Now, some of you are young in here. And by young, I mean anything... Um... Okay, I'm in trouble. I've got my mom in here. I've got my grandmother in here. <laughs> By young, I mean anything under 90. <laughs> some of you are young. No. We've got some high school age and below in here. And I'm going to, I've got a fellow, how old are you, Charlie? No, oh, you look like you're 12. He's 28. Okay. Uh, <laughs> how old are you? 17. What's your name? Bailey. Bailey. Bailey is 17. Bailey, I'm talking to you. I'm going to teach you to be on the front row, girl. And I'm talking to all those Baileys out there that have hidden themselves. And I see you like slinking down further lest I call you out. 
I'll tell you something. One of the biggest things that makes a difference in your life is if you are someone who is responsible, and by that I mean this, if someone says to you, I need you to do this, and you say, okay, you do it. It's that simple. And you don't just do it, you do it very, very well. And what happens, Bailey and everybody else, what happens is the people who give you that job, it may not occur to them the first or the second time even, but it'll occur to them, oh my goodness, she does what she says she's going to do and she does it well. I'm going to give her more responsibility and more responsibility and more responsibility. And class, now I'll speak to everybody, that's no different than what God does with all of us. God tells us things he wants us to do. He tells you how to use your money. He tells you how to use your talents. He tells you how to use your love and your attention. And when you do it, and you do it well, and you do it responsibly, he says, I can trust them. I'm going to give them more. I'm going to give them more. I'm going to give them more responsibility. And it's very simple. So this is Titus. He's responsible. He was also a missionary. It's interesting when we read uh, 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 later on in 2 Timothy, we're going to see that Paul's talking about how Titus went up to what is modern-day Yugoslavia to take the gospel message. So this is a guy who's wonderful. Now, when Paul's writing this, if we take a map of the Middle East, well, this is in the Middle East, this is the Mediterranean. Here's uh, Israel over here, okay? Um, we've got Macedonia up there. That's where the Philippian church was and the and uh, some others. This is Greece right over here. Um, here's Galatia in uh, modern-day Turkey. Ephesus is right over here. Uh, Istanbul, uh, where they do all the James Bond movies, is right up here. Um, this is the island of Crete. It's over 100 miles long. It's a huge island. All right? That's where Tim Titus was when Paul wrote this letter. Paul's up here in Macedonia writes this letter down here because Paul had come to Crete with Titus and Paul had left Titus at Crete while Paul went on and did some other things. And then Paul writes Titus this letter and, and uh, sends it to Titus. The outline of the book that we'll look at briefly is, is not too hard. Paul starts out with greetings and instructions on church structure. Then he starts talking about teachings for different groups of people within the church. Then he talks about just his final remarks, which contain one of the most profound statements in the Bible. Look forward to that one. See if you can guess what it is when we get there. We'll start with the first section, greetings and instructions on church structure. Now, when Paul wrote letters, how did he start them out? He always started it out saying, I'm Paul, I'm writing you this letter, right? Does it a little differently in this letter to Titus. Let's look at it. If we first we're going to look at 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, and Colossians, three letters we've already covered. Paul starts each one of those out as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the church at Ephesus, or to the church at Corinth, or to the church at Colossae. Okay? And that's how he identifies himself. Pretty, pretty short and sweet, isn't it? Paul, you listen to me because I'm an apostle by the will of God. Bam! That's it. Now, let's compare it, say, to Philippians. Philippians, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to the saints in Philippi. That's just it. He identifies himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. Or let's go to 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Paul, to the church at Thessalonica. Okay? That's pretty simple. All right? Titus, eh -eh. And Paul's getting a little older. Maybe he's a little more long-winded. 
Maybe he's got a few more things to say. But the only other letter that, that comes close to this is the way Paul opens Romans. Paul starts out Titus with this. Paul, not just Paul, but Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. And that's not it. It goes on, so we've got to make it bigger. At that point, we trade up on the scroll. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior to Titus. And that's the way he starts this letter out. He goes on and on and on. Now, this is supposed to be like the letterhead at the top of the letter. You know, like Mark Lanier, Lanier Law Firm, to Louis Miori. CFBC, hey buddy, you're putting on some weight. That's, okay, before Paul even gets that, Paul doesn't just have Paul, an apostle of God. I mean, his letterhead, he didn't have room to write a letter almost. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So if he's going to go to that much trouble to put all of that on his name, let's take a moment and see what so impressed him that he is willing to run out of ink before he got to the meat of the letter. Okay? So we're going to throw it over here on the left side as you're facing the screen and pull out some of it. Paul says he's a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why was Paul an apostle? An apostle is someone who's been sent with a message. Why was Paul, we get the word postal from it, like post office. Okay? Why was Paul an apostle? Why? In Paul's mind, he was an apostle for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now, I like this and I want to pause for a moment. For faith and knowledge that lead to godliness. Those are two different things for Paul. Faith is trusting in God and Jesus. Okay? And you cannot go to godliness without trust and faith. But that's not all. Paul wants people, and Paul has been sent by Jesus to give people knowledge. There's a reason you come to Bible class beyond just wanting to grow in faith. Certainly, as you draw into the presence of God, your faith grows. I don't doubt that at all. But hopefully, we're not just here to sing songs of worship and draw into the presence of God for our faith to grow. God wants us to grow in knowledge. Knowledge is not a bad thing. Knowledge is a necessary thing. Because growing in knowledge will lead to godliness. So coming to class is uh, hopefully a good thing if we're going to grow in knowledge. I really like this. Paul was an apostle not just to create faith in people, but that faith that he created was also to go hand in hand with knowledge that leads to godliness. Now Paul emphasizes this. He says it again. This faith and knowledge is resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Now, this is, um, this is interesting. When it says, a faith and knowledge resting 
on, the hope of eternal life. Um, Paul's saying that, all right, this is tough. <clears throat> I've been working on how to teach this, and I hadn't figured it out yet. <laughs> it's kind of like decision time, too, right now, okay? Let me tell you my quandary and why I have trouble teaching this. Godliness is very, very important. Who we are and how we act and, 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 and our character is very important. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to change us into more godly people, okay? Now, I've been living for almost 45 years. And there are areas in my life where I would love to be more godly. I've identified some of these areas some time ago. Merely identifying an area where I wish to be more godly does not allow me to be more godly there. There is that struggle that Paul wrote about in Romans. The things I want to do, I don't do all the time. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And I would love to be able to tell you that faith and knowledge are going to overcome those problems. But they don't, as a, they don't in the sense of being a miracle pill. That's some of what faith and knowledge does, though, is it teaches you there isn't the miracle pill. It teaches you endurance day after day. You stumble, you get up, and you do it again. And you keep your eyes on God. And you keep your faith and your confidence in the knowledge of a hope of eternal life. Now, hope, not in the sense that you've bought a lottery ticket and you're hoping the numbers come in. The Greek word that we translate hope doesn't mean hope like that. It's the word elpis. It means um, I confidently expect it. It's just not here yet. The hope of eternal life that Paul's talking about is not, oh, I hope it happens. It's more, okay, I got it. I know I got it, but I don't have it here yet. It's around the corner. But I don't have any doubt that it's around the corner. There's not a, an, any issue with me. And so Paul's saying that if you have faith and you, have, and you grow in your faith and you have knowledge of this and they rest on the fact that this is not the end for us. The condition that you and I are in today, which if we've got 250 people in here are 250 different conditions from the 17-year-olds to the 28-year-olds to the Alphonse... 95-year-olds. The conditions we're in are all different, but I want to tell you something. The conditions we're all in, in faith and knowledge, I tell you this, is not where we end up. Because God's not finished with us. And we have the promise when He is finished with us, we will be living eternally with Him, with life in us, not death. So all of that death that's in us and all of that gunk that's in us, it's gone eternally. And what's left is this newly created life. And that's a motivator. That motivates me because I don't stay down. I get up because I know what's coming. 
and I know what's expected. And that's the core of what this book is about. And that's why Paul puts it in here so front and center. Paul says to, to Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was so you could straighten out what was left unfinished. We got started doing some stuff. I want you to finish it. I want you to straighten it out. And I also want you to appoint elders in every town because we need people over the churches teaching this stuff. We need people over the churches explaining so that people can grow in knowledge. And when you appoint elders in each town, Paul gives a list. He gives two lists. He gives a list of things that they're not supposed to be and he gives a list of things that they're supposed to be. We got the negatives and we got the positives. What are they? Negatives. Elders are not to be overbearing. Isn't that interesting? I have to watch that. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not an elder, okay? I, quite candidly, I don't have a desire to be an elder. It's not like the position I'm jockeying for, okay? But I do want to tell you that I look at these traits anyway because I measure them by myself. I think about, okay, in my life circle, if someone came to me, would they say I'm overbearing? Am I overbearing with the, my family? Am I overbearing with my children? Am I overbearing with my friends? Am I overbearing at work? I don't know. I hope not. I don't want to be. So I'm going to be sensitive to that. That's something I'm going to look out for. I don't want to be overbearing. Quick-tempered. Not to be quick-tempered. What does that mean? Really good at counting to 10? Maybe. <laughs> Does that mean, but, but, but not being quick-tempered, I think counting to 10 may be the first steps along the way. But I don't think you want to just end there, which means I have a quick temper, but I've got it under control because I can count to 10. I grew up in a house, my father was not a quick-tempered man. Not to say he didn't have a temper, he did. But it was, it was a long time coming. And one of his favorite expressions that I have loved and grown up with, his dad would say this, something bad happens. You spill milk. You, uh, uh, you know, messed up something, uh, uh, you know, like he gives me a chore to do with wood. And I've got this board I'm supposed to cut. And I've cut this board three times and it's still too short. <laughs> You make mistakes, right? Here's one of Dad's expressions. If that's the worst thing that happens, you're going to have a pretty good day. Or if that's the worst thing that happens to you, you're going to have a good life. And that was a perspective maker for me as a kid growing up. And it's one that's still there for me as an adult. Don't be quick-tempered. Don't have a wild family. Says so you're supposed to have the husband of one wife. Not fooling around on her, being faithful to her. And your kids aren't supposed to be out there hanging off the chandeliers. Because Paul says if the fellow's not taking care of his kids, what makes you think he can take care of the church? Not to be a heavy drinker. Now that doesn't mean that he's not supposed to weigh a lot. By heavy drinker, it's talking about... Not given to much wine, okay? Um, uh, not given to much wine. It's not supposed to be violent. 
Now, what's he supposed to be? He's supposed to be hospitable, gracious, open up their homes, open up what they've got, eat with you, share the food, share the energy, share the money. He's supposed to love things that are good. Love things that are good. Some people love things that feel good. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about loving things that are good in themselves. That's what you care about. Self-controlled, upright, holy. And someone who holds firm to the gospel. That's what he wants for the elders. And he says, I want you to put these elders in every town. Let me tell you why. Because I want them to encourage sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now let's go back. Someone who's overbearing, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not a wild family, not a heavy drinker, not violent, but instead hospitable, loving good, self-controlled, upright, holy, holding to the gospel, is someone who's going to encourage sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. That tells me that those are elements of sound doctrine. Usually you think of sound doctrine just being, oh, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Physically born of the Virgin Mary, resurrected, ascended unto heaven, you know, and we go through the creed. Well, yes, that's doctrine. But sound doctrine is also reflected in how you teach people to act and to be. So that's what he wants. Now, Paul then goes into various groups of the church and he talks to them about different things. There are four, five groups the way Paul does it. Let's look at them. First of all, older men. Now, I'm not going to classify you. Lewis, y'all figure out which of these categories you fit in, okay? Because this is not my job to classify you. You make your decision. Older men, older women, it's a tough pill, but someone's going to have to bite it, okay? Older women, younger women, younger men. Now, in that culture, in that day, there were a group of people that legally were not considered citizens or even people. They were considered chattel, our possessions. But Paul adds them to this list because for Paul, even though they carry the title slave, which in our minds is a deplorable word, and quite rightly so, because history has been, uh, uh, it, it's a horrible part of our history, okay? When Paul's writing, though, Paul's saying actually a compliment when he throws slaves in with the rest because Paul's saying they're no less people than the older men and the older women, younger men, women and younger men. Slaves, they go right in with the rest of them in Paul's mind. Paul says they're not different. All right? Now, what do we have here? Older men. Lewis, let's look at them. Temperate. Now, what that means is uh, not a lush. Okay, temperate in the sense that they're not uh, staggering down uh, uh, with red eyes, Howard, uh, uh, <laughs> from heavy drink or glazed donuts either. Older men, they're to be temperate, not heavy drinking. Worthy of respect. He says, Titus, teach the older men to be worthy of respect. Now, you may be saying, I didn't think you could teach an old man anything. Yes, you can. It's an old dog you can't teach new tricks to. <laughs> older men can learn. And they need to learn to be worthy of respect. We're supposed to respect our elders. That's fine. That's our responsibility. But their responsibility is to get worthy of it. Okay? Self-controlled. Sound in faith. 
Well, that's more for young men. Old men, we can do what we want to do. We deserve that, or we've earned that right by living this long. No. You need to learn to be sound in faith. I don't care how old you are. You need, you need to continue to learn. Not just sound in faith, but sound in love. No, I'm an old man. I'm crusty. Well, maybe soften up a little bit, Mr. Crusty. Yeah, I came from a generation where we don't say I love you. Well, why don't you start changing now because you live in a generation where you ought to. Eh, love is not a part of who I am. I'm a crusty old man. Well, Paul says change. Be sound in love. And don't just change because of Sunday school today. Don't just change over lunch. Be sound in endurance. Change it every day. Make it who you are. Older women. Well, let's start out. Live reverently. Older women. Live recognizing there is a God that's worthy of your awe and inspiration. Not just that, but don't speak poorly of others. I don't know what it is about older women. I don't know what it is about all of us. All of us have just a real tendency to speak poorly of others when they're not around. We're not supposed to do that. Absolutely not supposed to do that. Hey, what, does, what good does it do anyway? It's not like you're going to change them. They're not listening. Hey, <laughs> guys, really sorry. Well, if you want to change them, and that's the reason you're saying it, go up to them and say, hey, you're really sorry. Okay. Don't speak poorly of others. Don't overdrink. I guess there may have been some women on Crete who are saying, it's about time. You know, I've kept it under control for 50 years. <laughs> Pass the whiskey. Um, <laughs> Train the younger women. And this is interesting to me because Paul tells Titus to teach the older men, to teach the older women, and to teach the younger men. But he's in essence saying, Titus, hands off the younger women. Let the older women teach them. So, younger women. Tell the older women to teach the younger women what it means to love their husbands and to love their children. It's not to say women, young women didn't have a love for their children. But teach them what it means. Older women teach the younger women what it means to love their husbands and children. And we lose a lot of this because we're out of community in so many ways. But I would challenge you to figure out how to make it work. If you're an older woman, I would challenge you, just in your own mind right now, think, who is a younger woman that God has in my life? Because I'm going to try and teach her some things. And that's not by going in and banging down her door tomorrow morning at 7 in the morning while she's trying to get her kids ready for school and say, you're messing up. Let me tell you how to do it. You spread the mayonnaise on the sandwich wrong. You didn't cut the crusts off. They won't know you love them. That's not the way you do it. That's bossing people around. There's a big difference. Okay? But I challenge you, if you're an older woman, to think of a younger woman in your life and then figure out, make a commitment right now, I'm going to figure out how I can help teach that younger woman what it means to love her husband and to love her children. Teach that younger woman self-control. Teach that younger woman purity. Teach that younger woman kindness and respect. And teach that younger woman how to take care of her responsibilities at home. 
And uh, that's what Paul urges Timothy to have done. Um, then, younger men. Okay. Um, self-control. Isn't that interesting? He puts that for a bunch of people. But for younger men, he numbers it first. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> integrity. Integrity. Teach integrity. Teach honesty and integrity. I don't even want to go into great depth on what integrity means. I'd just like to pause for a minute and let you chew on it. There's a young fellow on the third row. I want you to learn integrity. If I was good up here, I'd teach you integrity. You grow up and be a man of integrity, a man of self-control. You grow up and be a man of seriousness. That doesn't mean you can't tell jokes. But that means you've recognized when the serious moments are. And you have about you a sense of what they are. And you understand that there are some things that are serious. Soundness of speech. Evidently, the young men back in that time thought it was really cool to talk in ways that's not very sound from a Christian perspective. And Paul says to Titus, teach the young men how to talk. Because at school, they're not going to really learn how to talk, right? But you teach them. I've told you all before, mom appealed to our ego on speaking, right? Mom's response was, look, anybody can talk like the street. Anybody can use cuss words. It takes someone of really good brain power to figure out a better way to say it. Oh. Okay, well, if you're going to appeal to that, then I'll certainly figure out a better way to call someone a bad name. <laughs> Soundness of speech. Slaves. We don't have slaves today, thank God. We have employees. That's our marketplace. So I'd tell you in the marketplace, if you're an employee, take this on in your brain. That's our, our, our economic system. Be honest. Be an honest employee. Don't just be honest, but be trustworthy and respectful. And God will use you as his evangelist for the people you work around. Now, these are not new things, and these are not bizarre things. This is something Paul says is common sense. It's common sense because if we remember that Christ gave himself for us, he gave himself to redeem us from wickedness. He gave himself so that he could purify for himself a people who were eager to do what is good. That's what Christ came for. He didn't just come so that, that we'd have a New Testament and we could get rid of the, the, the Old Testament and start eating ham. That's not the reason He came. He came to redeem us from wickedness. He came so that we could be set free from sin and not just eternally. He didn't just come to redeem us for eternal life so we could live in heaven. He came to redeem us now to set us free from wickedness. We don't have to live that way anymore. Our actions are important on this earth. If you look in the rearview mirror, Paul says, even Paul, he says, I used to be foolish. I used to be disobedient. I was deceived. I was enslaved by all of my passions and my pleasures. That's the way I used to be. But, and it's a big but, when the kindness and love of our God and Savior appeared... Yeah. I didn't mean it. Sorry. 
<laughs> when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, our God, of God our Savior appeared, look what happened. We don't live like we used to live. All of that's gone. It's disappeared. And now we're careful to devote ourselves to doing what's good. Now we're careful to devote ourselves to doing what's excellent, to doing what's profitable. Make sense? Okay, that's the meat of it. Now, I did tell you that maybe the most priceless verse in the letter, or maybe one in the Bible, is at the end in the closing notes. And I don't know if you know what it is yet, and I don't want to make a big deal any, out of it, but... <laughs> Paul says, uh, right as he's closing the letter, probably because he really wanted to emphasize it and put it there at the end, do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer... And Paul didn't put it in all capitals. I must confess I added that. Here are your points for home. <laughs> Faith is real. This isn't a game. Jesus really did come. God really became flesh. And God really came to this earth. And God really died for each one of us. It really happened. It happened about 19, 2,000 years ago. 1,970 years ago he died. It really happened. Not only is that faith real, but what it does is real. It really saves us. Jesus really died to take the price of our sins. And by trusting that, we really are God's people for eternity. It's the truth. It's the truth. You and I accept Jesus. We're going to be seeing each other for a long, long time. Because when we're through with this earth and this body, we're going home. And that's for real. It's nice to get to know you because we're going to be together. My jokes may not get any better, but we're going to be together. <laughs> Faith is real, salvation is real, and our lives ought to show it. They really should. They ought to show the truth of what's going on here. Pray with me, please. Lord, we thank you for who you are, and I thank you for the love and care you give us. And it's these practical letters that Paul wrote that you've insured for our ages. Father, may we take them to heart. It is my prayer that as older men, we will model the behaviors that, that we read about. As older women, we will model those behaviors. As, as younger men and as younger women, that we as a group, Lord, will find who you are and how you speak to us today at this point in history, in our lives on an individual, personal basis. And that we'll let your voice change us for eternity's sake. Through our Lord and Savior, amen.